Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love you to open it now to Psalm 35. The superscription here says very simply, of David. There isn't any biographical information provided in this description, so we have to rely on the content of the psalm itself to ascertain, if possible, the particular historical background. Some commentators suggest that the terms and phrases used in the psalm fit very nicely with the story narrated in 1 Samuel 24 when David spared King Saul's life in the cave. You may recall that story. Saul had become very suspicious of David and had begun to pursue him, intent on taking his life. David and a few of his loyal friends were hiding in a cave, and Saul went into the cave to relieve himself. David crept forward and cut off the corner of Saul's robe and then confronted Saul with that evidence in an attempt to prove his covenant loyalty. So that definitely could be it. Certainly there were people whispering in Saul's ear and saying all kinds of untrue and malicious things about David. And certainly he was being treated unjustly. Certainly there were charges against David of a legal nature as a result of his having been declared an outlaw and a traitor. So all of that could make sense of the language and could very well be the historical background for this psalm. However, other commentators think that this psalm fits better later in David's life when he was king over all Israel and engaged in international affairs. The Word Bible Commentary, for example, gives it the title, A Royal Psalm for International Crisis. Peter Craigie says confidently here, The external situation, which must be envisaged, is one that is both military and legal. Almost certainly, the king faces the threat of war from foreign enemies, who in turn are using as an excuse for war certain purported violations of a treaty agreement. It is the background of an international treaty between the king, representing Israel, and a foreign power, which provides the appropriate framework within which both the military and the legal language may be interpreted. Quote. On balance, I think that is the stronger argument. Now, at the end of the day, we can't be certain because there is no biographical information in the superscription. Regardless, the main details are pretty straightforward. David feels that he has been faithful to his covenant commitments, be they personal or international. And he feels that he has been betrayed, slandered, and mistreated, and he calls upon the Lord to uphold his cause. W.S. Plumer says succinctly, the object of the psalmist is to commit his cause to God as advocate, judge, avenger, close quote. Regardless of the historical background you want to imagine, that much at least is patently obvious. In terms of structure, all of the commentaries appear to assume the same basic division, with verses 1 to 10 constituting the first section, in which David prays for God's assistance in the conflict generally and in battle particularly, then in the second section, in verses 11 to 18, there's an extended lament in which David describes his enemies and their wicked betrayal, which culminates in a prayer for rescue and vindication. 
Then in the final section, in verses 19 to 28, we have a prayer directed against the enemies, along with the assurance that said prayer will be answered and an anticipation of the worship of God's people in response. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. Contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Take hold of shield and buckler and rise for my help. Draw the spear and javelin against my pursuers. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. One commentator actually suggests that God is being portrayed here as a hero among the infantry, like marching to war with one of the giants of Greek mythology. David is speaking poetically, obviously, but the imagery is colorful and stirring. Be a giant among us. Be a wrecking ball in the midst of our enemies. Lead the charge, Lord. Say to the troops, I am your salvation. Well, that's a good prayer for a king about to lead his people into battle, if indeed that was the original context for this psalm. Verse 4. Let them be put to shame and dishonor who seek after my life. Let them be turned back and disappointed who devise evil against me. Let's just pause here for a moment and notice a few things. First of all, let's notice that salvation in the biblical sense is generally thought of as deliverance and vindication. Peter Craigie, again, is helpful here. He says, the biblical view of life is such that a threat to the well-being of soul or body requires a divine act of deliverance, including vindication of the people of God and vengeance on the enemy, closed quote. Now, I think that's one of the reasons that we struggle as New Testament believers with some of these Old Testament Psalms. We've been trained by Jesus to have pity on our enemies and even to pray for our enemies. And that's true. However, David is the king of Israel. And as the king of Israel, as David, he is also a type of Christ. And I'm using the word type here in the sense of a prophetic anticipation of Jesus. And thus, we should be thinking here, not immediately in terms of personal application, but rather in terms of Christological application. We'll get to personal application in just a minute because there are principles here in terms of how to deal with unjust accusations and how to deal with enemies of a human and spiritual nature, but those are secondary. Primarily, we want to be thinking here about Christ as the judge of covenant faithfulness. David is using covenantal language here. Look at all the sentences in verse 4 and in verse 5 that begin with the word let, as in let them be put to shame, let them be turned back, etc. That's treaty language. That is David saying, let the curses of covenant unfaithfulness fall upon them. So, for example, the word biblical commentary says here, the prayer seeks to bring about the divine action which was explicitly agreed upon by the partners to the treaty at the time it was signed, close quote. So covenants have consequences, and it is the king's job to enforce those consequences, as in the Old Testament, so in the New. Have you ever read Revelation 19? In Revelation 19, we get a picture of Jesus as covenant enforcer, and it's a pretty David-like picture. So listen to Revelation 19, 11 to 16. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, 
and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Closed quote. All right, so let's acknowledge that covenant enforcement in the New Testament is not all that dissimilar from covenant enforcement in the Old Testament. Jesus, as king, will deal harshly with all those who have hated him without a cause. That's verse 19 in Psalm 35, as quoted by Jesus in John 15. So Jesus himself identifies with this psalm. That's probably helpful for us to remember that. So primarily, we want to see in this psalm the concern of the king to see justice done in terms of the covenant blessings and curses. Now, that's a mindset we struggle to get into as evangelicals or as 21st century Bible readers. But it is there quite clearly in the Bible, Old Testament and New. We hear the Apostle Paul say in 1 Corinthians 16, 22, If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. So Paul says, if you don't love the king, and if you're not in covenant relationship with the king, then may you be accursed. Let him be accursed. That's the exact same phraseology we're encountering here. Look at verse 5, Psalm 35, verse 5. Let them be like chaff before the wind, with the angel of the Lord driving them away. Let their way be dark and slippery, with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. So David is praying for the angel of the Lord to come join him in enforcing these covenant curses. J. Alec Matier says here, Remember that the angel is Jesus in the fullness of his deity as the Son of God, in the fullness of his distinctiveness as Son of Man, always with us, never leaving or forsaking, constantly holding. Closed quote. So Jesus is in the business of protecting and vindicating his people. And as we just saw in Revelation 19, Jesus is committed to punishing betrayal, disloyalty, and rebellion. So again, if you can't swallow this as a New Testament believer, the problem is in you, not in the Bible. There is no disharmony in the scriptures when it comes to this sort of messaging. If we are in right relationship with the king, we will experience blessing. If we rebel against the king, reject the king, oppose the king, or fail in our love for the king, we will experience cursing. That's true in the Bible, Old Testament and New. Now, just to go back to a detail from that quote from J. Alec Montier, not, not everyone agrees with Montier that the angel of the Lord is Jesus. But even if you don't quite go there, the message is still the same. The angel of the Lord is sent by and authorized by God. So the essential harmony here is in no way disrupted. Willem van Gemmeren, for example, who does not strictly identify the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament with Jesus or the second person of the Trinity, nevertheless remarks that the agent of the judgments is the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord protects the godly and in so doing works death and disaster 
on all who plan trouble for God's children, closed quote. So, how you are disposed toward the king and how you are disposed toward the king's true subjects does determine whether you experience covenant curses or covenant blessings, regardless of how they are applied or through what agency. That is the truth. That is the case in the Bible, Old Testament and New. Verse 7, For without cause they hid their net for me, without cause they dug a pit for my life. Let destruction come upon him when he does not know it, and let the net that he hid ensnare him. Let him fall into it to his destruction. I love what John Morrison says here. He says, It not infrequently happens that when a man is preparing sorrows for his fellow creatures, he is only in reality framing a weapon for his own chastisement and wetting the edge of those miseries which shall afflict his own soul. Close quote. That is well and helpfully said. That is always true, but that is particularly true for those who oppose the Lord's anointed. David in the immediate sense of Psalm 35, but Jesus in an ultimate sense. We think of what Jesus said to Saul on the road to Damascus in Acts 26. He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So opposing Jesus, opposing God's people is an act of self-harm. There is no long-term future in it. Verse 9, Then my soul will rejoice in the Lord, exulting in his salvation. All my bones shall say, O Lord, who is like you, delivering the poor from him who is too strong for him, the poor and needy from him who robs him? So here, David ends the first part of the psalm with an anticipation of praise. He's a man of faith, and he knows that God has committed to his cause. Therefore, he knows that the Lord will answer, and he prepares, as it were, his response of gratitude and praise. In verse 11, we enter into the second section in the psalm. This section is generally characterized as a personal lament. Malicious witnesses rise up. They ask me of things that I do not know. They repay me evil for good. My soul is bereft. But I, when they were sick, I wore sackcloth. I afflicted myself with fasting. I prayed with head bowed on my chest. I went about as though I grieved for my friend or my brother. As one who laments his mother, I bowed down in mourning. So David here protests his covenant innocence. He acted appropriately and with all due love, loyalty, and compassion. If we're right in seeing an international context here, then David is saying that when such and such a king was ill, David did what an ally should. He fasted. He wore sackcloth. He prayed. He was a faithful covenant partner. But now accusations of disloyalty are being falsely leveled against him as a pretext for war and rebellion. Now note that in order to convince ourselves that our actions are not seditious, we often attempt to delude ourselves with respect to the generosity of our master. Think of Adam and Eve in the garden. Eve was so quick to discount the permission and generosity of God. When questioned by the serpent, she replied, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, 
You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. So Eve said, oh yes, we, we have access to the trees in the garden. She makes no mention of the breadth of access that they were given. Adam and Eve had access to all the trees of the garden, save one. She then goes on to exaggerate the restrictions that God imposed. She has God forbidding them even to touch the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, lest they die. But that wasn't true. God never forbade touching, only eating. Eve convinces herself that her master has been unkind, ungenerous, and unloving, and this pretext becomes justification in her mind for an act of sedition. You'll see that pattern repeated again and again whenever people want to rebel against the proper authorities that are over them. They'll invent stories and post hoc justification for the decision they've made to rebel. So it is here. And David is devastated. They have returned evil for his good. They have returned slander for his benevolence. Verse 15. But at my stumbling, they rejoiced and gathered. They gathered together against me. Wretches, whom I did not know, tore at me without ceasing, like profane mockers at a feast. They gnash at me with their teeth. How long, O Lord, will you look on? Rescue me from their destruction, my precious life from the lions. I will thank you in the great congregation, in the mighty throng. I will praise you. Now, we can't be sure what type of stumbling David has in mind in verse 15. The Tyndale Old Testament commentary says here, Stumbling may suggest to us a sinful lapse, as in the New Testament, but the word used here is a figure for calamity. So it would appear that some sort of stumble or setback for David politically or economically or militarily has emboldened these people to attack him as opposed to doing what David did in their difficulties, which was to fast and pray. There is a particular sorrow in having people you thought to be friends turn upon you in your times of difficulty. David Dixon says here, Sad taunts and scoffs of pretended holy men jeering at true piety is no small part of the persecution of Christ and of his followers, closed quote. And that is true. Jesus endured that, and all of his followers must be prepared for that as well. We cannot assume that people will treat us as we have treated them. Some of the people we love and care for and serve will pounce upon the slightest stumbling in our lives and attempt to capitalize on it. We mustn't allow that to break our spirit. That is part of the cost of following Jesus. Rather, we should rejoice in so far as we partake of his suffering. Now, notice also, just quickly here, how often animals are used as figures and metaphors for types of men and for classes of spiritual adversary. So in verse 17, David compares his enemies to lions. And of course, we think of the snakes and serpents of Psalm 91, or the beast arising from the sea in the book of Revelation. And this will be helpful background for us when we come to Jesus saying to his disciples in Luke 10, verse 19, 
Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. This is not a guarantee against snake bite. <laughs> of course, we all know there are, there are some extreme communities of Christians who think this is Jesus literally saying, go ahead and play with snakes. You know, pick them up. I won't let the snakes hurt you. That's an over-literal understanding of what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is speaking in Old Testament metaphor. This is Jesus acting as the king of Psalm 35. This is Jesus saying that his people, his emissaries, are under his authority, and they shall not be trampled down by their enemies, no matter how vicious or venomous they may be. In the final analysis, Christ himself will be their defender, judge, and vindicator. That is the guarantee that Jesus gives to his disciples, to his spokespersons. And we're to hear that in the metaphor of Old Testament language, particularly the language of the Psalms. Verse 19, Let not those rejoice over me who are wrongfully my foes, and let not those wink the eye, who hate me without cause. Now, as mentioned, this verse, or the last half of this verse, is quoted by Jesus in John 15, verse 25. There Jesus says, But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. Closed quote. That's a very interesting citation. I want you to notice a couple of things here. First of all, and most importantly, notice how Jesus owns this Davidic pattern. He says here, this had to happen because it fulfills the Davidic pattern. Now, notice also, and less significantly, that Jesus refers to Psalm 35 as the law, their law, actually, which is interesting in and of itself. But for now, just notice that you can use the word law in a general sense to refer to the entire Old Testament, as Jesus does here. Verse 20, For they do not speak peace, but against those who are quiet in the land, they devise words of deceit. They open wide their mouths against me. They say, aha, aha, our eyes have seen it. You have seen, O Lord, be not silent. O Lord, be not far from me. Awake and rouse yourself for my vindication, for my cause, my God and my Lord. Vindicate me, O Lord, my God, according to your righteousness, and let them not rejoice over me. Let them not say in their hearts, Aha, our hearts desire. Let them not say, We have swallowed him up. Let them be put to shame and disappointed altogether, who rejoice at my calamity. Let them be clothed with shame and dishonor, who magnify themselves against me. Let those who delight in my righteousness shout for joy, and be glad and say evermore, Great is the Lord, who delights in the welfare of his servant. Then my tongue shall tell of your righteousness and of your praise all the day long. So again, here at the end of the psalm, we have a prayer framed in covenantal terms, a variety of phrases like, let them not say, let them be put to shame, etc. David is saying, God, these people have betrayed the covenant. They oppose the Lord's anointed. Answer that, Lord, and bring upon them the curses appropriate to their betrayal. The last prayer in the psalm, in verse 27, is actually the flip side of that. Here David is saying, let those in right relationship with the king, let those who are faithful in their covenant obligations rejoice when they see your wise and appropriate judgments. 
Again, you can't separate the issue of vindication from the biblical definition of salvation. Salvation is not just rescue and redemption. It is restoration. And that includes public vindication before all those who slandered and judged us falsely. See, meekness only makes sense if we include this in our understanding of salvation. We're calling on people. Jesus is calling on people, and as New Testament speakers and preachers and teachers, we're calling on people to be meek. But meekness only makes sense if we preach the full doctrine of salvation. You see, because we will be vindicated, because no one gets away with slander, because all those who have lied must listen to the truth when it is spoken about us, because that is here promised, well, then, of course, we don't need to fight back. Of course, we don't need to return fire. Of, of course, we can turn the other cheek. We can bless those who curse us as believers. Because our covenant king will enforce and will judge and will cast down and will lift up and will publicly display his judgments on our behalf. We will be restored and we will be vindicated. And therefore, we can leave room for the wrath of God, as Paul says. We, we don't need to seek our own revenge. And therein lies the personal application. I mentioned that we should be primarily pursuing a Christological application for Psalm 35. But because there is a Christological application, then there is also an associated personal application. J. Alec Matier outlines that application perfectly. He says Psalm 35 has a program for us. Take first what lies at the heart of the psalm, and is also probably the hardest piece of its guidance. Wait patiently and trustfully for the Lord's timing. It may seem prolonged to us, and it is permitted to cry out, How long? Verse 17. Provided the cry is made in faith and not in criticism. Then, secondly, Psalm 35, 5-6 teaches us that it is actually in the very nature of our God to deal with our foes. It is not just something he does from time to time. It belongs in his very nature. It is part of what he is. Finally, we have the resource of prayer. Telling Yahweh, knowing that he is himself the counterweight to everything the enemy can do. This is the recipe then for the troubled day. Waiting with believing patience watching out for the angel at work, praying and leaving the outcome to him. Closed quote. <laughs> That's it exactly. That's an excellent program for us. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the End of the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting a mission project that is very close to my heart. The Letha Daycare Outreach Project is a church-based educational program designed to teach literacy, support low-income families, and share the gospel of Jesus Christ with boys and girls in rural South Africa. I've seen this project with my own eyes. I have shaken the hands of parents whose families have been helped. I have heard the songs and Bible verses out of the mouths of some of these dear children as they have been taught and helped to put their trust in the Lord. 
And nothing would be more gratifying to me than for you to show your appreciation for Into the Word by investing in these little ones. You can do that in one of two ways. You can give through the Into the Word app or by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. Just click on the Give tab and you'll find giving options for both Canadian and American listeners. This is a registered project with ABWE Canada and ABWE USA. So tax receipts are available to all eligible donors. Just identify where you're listening from and click on the Fund button and select Letha Daycare Outreach. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the End of the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word is a lamp unto my feet.